0: This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers.
1: So, I mean, basically, the situation that we're in is that, th- you know, we're caught between a kind of Scylla and Charybdis situation. Uh, on one side, if we do nothing to recover the value that's been stolen or lost or mislaid or however you want to think about what's happening in the DAO, uh, then we have 150 million or 50 million or, you know, whatever it is, three and a half million ether of loss, uh, which is kind of a big deal right? I mean, this is a really serious amount of money. And I suspect that the authorities are going to want accountability for that money, beyond people just shrugging their shoulders and saying like, hey, well, you know, we told people they were taking their own chances. Well, you know, turns out you can't really do that in most countries most of the time. So the other approach is that we go and we get the value back. And at that point, the next time somebody loses 25 bucks inside of a smart contract that they had a bug in, and then we refuse to get it back then what happens? So I think that the problem that we have here is that we are caught between two options, both of which are extremely unpalatable, and provide a really substantial set of excuses or reasons why um, the traditional machinery of society could choose to get involved in our affairs. Which is really a thing that we don't want to do, right? I mean, we would quite like the network to be autonomous, self-governing, and all the rest of these wonderful properties, but at the end of the day. Um, when we have a loss of this size inside of the network, it's very hard for us to tell the authorities that this is fundamentally not a problem. Looks like a problem. Acts like a problem. It's probably a problem. If we are having a problem, why shouldn't they get involved to help the users? See what I'm
0: saying? I do, I do, but I don't because I don't have a background in this kind of uh, in this kind of thing, and I don't. I haven't done any research on uh, on the way the powers that be manage this kind of situation, I really don't have any way of judging what the magnitude of this threat is, what the likelihood of it happening is, and what the uh, how it would pay out if there was a decision made somewhere in some agency to look at regulating um, cryptocurrencies like Ether.
1: Well, I mean, we are already regulated, right? We're in Switzerland. You know, the Ethereum Foundation is in Switzerland. They are, you know, given status as a charitable entity by the Swiss, you know, to produce essentially innovations in this kind of software. You know, the Ethereum Foundation is a regulated body. Um, you know, they can't go and spend all the money on Hooker's and Blow. That would break their charitable conditions. The money is held in, you know, some kind of charitable like structure. It's not a of trust, but it's something along those kind of lines. Stiftung. Um, so, you know, it's quite uh and I say this exactly, we have a detente with the regulatory system on the basis that we look like good citizens who are responsible innovators.
0: And so how might this change? How might this change and how, how would this actually pan out? If, uh, and who would get involved if, uh, if someone decided to?
1: Well, the risk is that everybody would get involved, right? So, um, you know, you could take a list of regulatory agencies as long as you arm, basically two or three or half a dozen per country, who Would potentially line up in rows to try and figure out what they were going to do about the decentralized application bug threat. Now, I think that's relatively unlikely as an outcome because kind of sort of nobody gives that much of a damn. You know, I bet that, I don't know, 85, 90, 95% of the money that was lost in the DAO um, will be recovered by technical means, possibly all of it. But, you know, an enormous amount of money has been recovered by the sort of white hat hacker stuff. And as long as that can be returned in some kind of sane way that leaves people content, should be fine, I would imagine. Hmm. But if we wind up kind of going on the other angle, uh, we only need one regulator to come in who's got any kind of substantial power to be able to put us in an extremely uncomfortable position. So what would the consequences for the ecosystem be? Well, I've been thinking about this. Um, my general experience is that when you're in a position where you've got two completely unpalatable things in front of you, the problem is usually that you think you have only two choices. And, you know, we're in this position where we think of Scylla and Charybdis. We've got our A and our B scenario, and neither one is particularly delightful. What are the things which are not on the same plane as the two options in front of us? You know, if we've got two things sitting on a table, Maybe the answer is we need to get up and above the situation to find something else. Now, let me think about exactly how to approach this. This is actually quite a tricky technical bit. So right now, one of the paths ahead of us is that we merge completely into the mainstream of what they call fintech. We become a platform which is largely used by the financial industry. You'll require lots and lots and lots of identity verification before you can move substantial amounts of value on the blockchain. And we simply integrate into the real world as something that's in the same general domain of operations as PayPal or Swift or maybe even Visa. And that is actually not necessarily a bad outcome for the ecosystem. There would be an awful lot of money to do development. There would be an awful lot of uh, ability to, you know, integrate into what you might loosely call the real world. It's very unlikely that we would wind up in a position where we carried an awful lot of legal exposure. And what would come out of that is a very different version of the future. It's certainly not what a lot of the early adopters of the Ethereum system want. But it is something that a lot of people are discovering is quite a successful strategy because we have an awful lot of people that are looking at Ethereum in the kind of fintech system and, you know, discovering that it's actually a pretty good way of doing business. So that's one possibility is that we simply execute a merger with Wall Street and the sort of great dream of decentralization and autonomy is deferred for another X years while somebody else comes along and has a crack at it.
0: That's kind of an apocalyptic scenario.
1: Yeah, but I mean, if it winds up with $150 Ether and 25 times the number of jobs that we currently see in the ecosystem, I'm not sure that
0: most of us would regard
1: that as an apocalypse.
0: No, but it is the death of a dream.
1: My friend, I have been a cypherpunk a really long time. I first heard that dream laid out in... I don't know, it must be the very early, mid-90s, 94, 95. You know, by 96, 97, I was kind of up to my eyeballs in it. You know, crypto anarchy's been around a really long time.
0: It turns out it's not easy. That would be such a disappointing thing for so many people, though, to, to have what was, it would, be, it, would be, it would be really psychologically damaging, I think, to, uh, to have come this far, you know, we've come so far. To then have the high watermark, Ethereum, this incredible tool for social organization, uh, repurposed by the very apparatus that it sought to replace. Yes, but, right, yes, but. Did we really think that we had a realistic chance of replacing that apparatus? Well, it's not so much replacing it, right? Maybe that's not the word. Indeed. Co-opting it, then.
1: Wouldn't that what we'd be doing if we merged into the financial system? I mean what more co-op effective co-option is there than your enemies cease to be able to tell the difference between you and
0: them uh, Yeah well I guess I guess but then who is who is it their dream that lives on in that scenario or or is it ours that becomes realized
1: George Orwell did us all a great disservice when at the end of animal farm you know the slogan was you know four legs bad uh, sort of four legs good two legs better right you know, they start out with four legs, good, two legs, bad, and then the pigs join with the humans, and you get two legs, good, uh, four legs, good, two legs, better. So you could say that this is the path that revolutionaries take over and over and over again. They get into a position where the system buys them out, and once they've been bought out by the system, with a combination of carrot and stick, they become the next generation of the system. And you think, oh my god, what a disaster. Well, I mean, yeah, it sounds like a disaster until, say, Vitalik is the Treasury Secretary of the United States. Then you think, wow, maybe that was actually kind of a good idea.
0: Yeah, I guess. It's not the, it's not the scenario that, that you know, we dreamed of, though, is it? And have you really looked
1: in detail at the scenario that people think they're dreaming of? <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Let me, let me just summarise this for you in a nutshell. Russian oligarchy at the... F- fall of the soviet union in 1991 with bitcoin good for the russian people bad for the russian people well it would be good for the russian people if the oligarchs could move the money around without any possibility of surveying what was happening to it um
0: <laughs> yeah i guess i guess uh, i didn't think about it that way
1: right if you could pay for it, if you could pay for assassinations completely anonymously right i mean we think assassination markets have never existed but let me tell you, if you'd had the Russian oligarchy with Bitcoin in the 1990s, early 1990s particularly, I think there's no way that you wouldn't have seen assassinations paid for in Bitcoin.
0: Oh, absolutely. But they get paid for in cash. And I'm sh- I'm sure that assassination markets have existed in the past and exist today.
1: But would the technology have accelerated – actually, I think the assassination market thing is largely mythological, possibly entirely
0: mythological. I think the crypto assassination market is mythological. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Beyond that, I mean, I don't know. Mafias are complicated. But my thesis is this. It would have been bad for
1: the Russian people because it would have hindered the oligarchy and their operations completely. <laughs> You would have no way of knowing where the state's assets gone. They would have just vanished into the blockchain, and that would be the last you'd have ever seen of them.
0: Now we have it, though. The Pandora's box has been opened. So, what happens next time? The uh, next next time a major state collapses and a ruling elite uh, decides to abscond. I mean, do, do we see a massive uh, a massive rally in the in the value of, of Bitcoin? Well, I mean, what do you think is keeping the price of Bitcoin afloat right now? Uh, I have no idea. what what, what do you think? Uh,
1: massive uncertainty about the global financial system strongly encourages people to have a little bit of Bitcoin somewhere in their portfolio. You know, Bitcoin is sitting out there as a potential actually tradable alternative to gold. And, you know, if the dollar was completely solid and the euro was completely solid and the pound and the yen and all the rest of these things were completely solid and the regulator eased up a little bit on international financial transfers, you know, if we had some kind of reliable way of doing international KYC that wasn't a massive pain in the ass, KYC is short from know your customer, uh, then in all probability the value of Bitcoin would be pretty close to zero, right? It'd be a couple of bucks. Because we're in an environment where all of the so called reserve currencies are completely rickety and most of the world's governments basically look like banana republics, then you're in this position where the possibility of a cryptographic alternative reserve currency is just real enough that it keeps Bitcoin in the running in a really big way. And the same is true for Ether. The reason the Ether has a substantial value is because everybody knows that the global financial system is incredibly rickety, and if we get some kind of spontaneous detonation of contagion, it could affect the global financial system in the same way that the Berlin Wall collapsing did the Soviet Union in. You just turn around one morning and the dollar is worth basically nothing, they're running the printing presses in the Federal Reserve white-hot and still the currency is, you know, tanking. And you wind up in a position where you're just like, "Wow, OK, that all went kind of wrong now. What do we do?" And that scenario was completely realistic. Something about, about that level of apocalyptic happens to the global financial system again and again and again and again in history. It's kind of roughly once a once a century. I like to think of it as that, you know the grandchildren have gotten the mistakes of the grandparents, and they recreate this kind of apocalypse. But this kind of stuff is normative for the global financial system. It, this is part of what it does.
0: How does that scenario pan out in, in terms of regulation and, uh, and, and the well-being of the many?
1: Um, if a dollar turns out to be worth you know, 25 cents and then 5 cents and then basically nothing, you're in a position where you, know, you see the collapse of an empire in the same way that the Soviets collapsed. And what up comes after that is almost always a massive drop in quality of life for everybody concerned, because what you discover is that the Empire was really good at a bunch of stuff, which is why the people were willing to permit it to exist for so long. You know, the Russian people could have gotten rid of the Soviet system of government pretty much at any time from maybe the 1970s onwards, and it wasn't until the system ceased to perform even the things it was supposed to be good at at all that you wind up with the entire thing going completely pear-shaped. Um, I think you could argue that right now, market capitalism in the currently extant forms, the actual thing that we see on the streets, is basically going through a failure to deliver of much the same kind that the Soviets went through. The promise of market capitalism is that you'll be richer tomorrow than today, so just shut up and let us get on with it. And when you see the market impoverishing the majority of Americans, never mind what it's done in Europe, the idea... is basically that you know communism is meant to provide you with substantial amounts of the basic things you need in life. When it stops doing that, you get rid of communism. Capitalism is supposed to ensure that you're continuing to do better and your kids will do better than you did. When that stops being true, the possibility is you just get rid of capitalism. And the notion that we are in a position where the existing structures died in the 2008 financial collapse and we're basically just continuing to extend the entire thing on this increasingly tenuous quantitative easing routine, I think is a pretty fair reading of history. It's not the one that I believe in most, but it's a very, very, very
0: easy to justify reasonable, rational perspective on what's going on. We're right at the end of the cycle then, if, if, you're, going to, uh, if you're going to look at it like that. I mean, we're, we're at the end of the business cycle right now, it seems, and interest rates are, what, 0.5% or something like that? Mm-hmm. Like, not too, not too hot in, uh, in the States. and um, Actually, negative in places where people actually want to keep their money. You know, if I
1: remember correctly, some of the Swiss banks actually have negative interest rates. They charge you money for keeping your money in them.
0: Oh, you mean you, you, they pay you to keep, the, keep your money? No, no.
1: You pay them to keep your money. Negative interest
0: rates. So you put your money in the bank
1: and they take a little piece of your money every month for keeping your money there. So why do they do that? Well, because at the end of the day, you want to put your money somewhere where you're sure when you ask for it back, they'll actually give it back to you. And the banks which are most stable are charging people for the privilege of keeping their money in a place where it will actually be there. This does sound pretty dire. Uh, Yeah, I mean, if you go and read places like Zero Hedge, they'll give you a
0: very, very clear idea about how rough this whole thing is. Okay, so we've actually meandered away from the uh, the, the regulatory iceberg that Ether might, or the the ether and other cryptocurrencies, I suppose, might be hitting for. Well, yes. I mean, you've got to remember that the regulatory iceberg is
1: on a planet which is also in the process of being hit by an empire collapse asteroid. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I spent a good five years working on, you know, strategic planning for managing failed states in first world countries. Right, and There's an entire thing called the Gupta State Failure Management Archive. It's a bunch of talks. It's a bunch of lectures. and had a speaking tour in Ireland. I predicted that Greece would be the first company in Europe to turn into a failed state and the first thing collapsed would be its medical system, which is right in the middle of happening right now. Um, you know, All of that sort of stuff, I spent an enormous amount of time focusing on that because it was another classic humanitarian disaster and I wanted to be able to do something to help those people. So, you know, we are right on the track that I had predicted. We're moving at about a half or a third of the speed that I'd anticipated, but there's no doubt at all in my mind that this gets worse before it gets better for at least some of the people inside of the
0: developed world. Now, to say it gets worse before it gets better is very different from the uh, empire-collapsing asteroid. Uh, No, not at all. I mean, you know,
1: life in Russia got much worse at the fall of the Soviet Union over the next 10 or so years they lost something like 20 years of life expectancy for men men went from dying in their 70s to dying in their 50s it was an astonishing humanitarian disaster and then things began to get better again afterwards because society reorganized on more effective lines so if you saw this kind of global financial system just takes an enormous dump you know uh, and you saw like 1930 style total collapse of you know, aspiration, total collapse of hope, it impacts baseline manufacturing, the economy looks solid, you end up with lost generations. If you saw that kind of stuff actually happen, frankly, nobody is going to care that a bunch of people lost a bunch of money on something called a Dow. What they're going to care about is, can we keep international trade going so that when we harvest our peaches, we can sell them abroad, and then when they harvest their apples at a different time of year, we can import them and everybody continues to eat the fundamental function of these systems is to maintain trade so that you get Ricardian advantage. Everybody does what they do best. As a result, the total productivity of the world is maximized. As a result, the pie that we are dividing to exist is maximized, and it reduces conflict and tension because you've got relative material abundance.
0: So that being the case, are we waiting for this global, uh, global financial collapse in order to stave off regulation of Ether? <laughs>
1: no it's not quite that simple um but you know think of the process that leads me you know mr state failure management guy into what amounts to uh you know the kind of militant branch of wall street you know i come over here basically because i need a job i've got a relevant set of skills i've got a background in crypto i'm fairly articulate and i make my way into the ether game because Nobody is willing to pay for consultancy on how to keep people fed during the middle of having their states collapse. Nobody takes the threat seriously. Nobody will pay me to do that work. I need to make a living because I've been basically spent 15 years working for free on the worst, nastiest scenarios I could find and doing a little bit of consulting here and there to pay the bills, but I cannot get paid for doing the work that I'm actually here to do because it's so terrifying that nobody will basically put money behind getting a cleaner picture of it. And I come into the ether game like, well, you know, I can give you guys a little bit of a hand and I think you're going to do pretty well. This is all the work that was unfinished from the cypherpunk revolution of the 1990s. I haven't heard, you know, the word smart contract used in a serious way in about 15 years. And I was suddenly like, Smart contract, and you got to remember, you know, I totally ignored Bitcoin because I knew from the eGold experience that currency was not enough. eGold was a privately issued gold-backed currency, ran out of Florida in the nineteen nineties. At its peak, it had, you know, I don't know, maybe a hundred million dollars worth of market cap, all gold-backed, so it's physical gold in a vault. And you know, it just did not produce anything interesting in terms of social change. And from that, I learned that currency wasn't enough. So I come over here. Because I need to basically put a little bit of financial security behind myself because if the financial collapse happens and I'm at the low end of the economic spectrum living in, you know, shared accommodation in zone four, basically worrying about my rent every month, first against the wall when things snap. Absolutely, yeah. So the fact is that I take the risk of global financial collapse seriously enough that I start to climb the economic ladder as a way of getting further away from the water when the ship starts to sink.
0: <laughs> this is the most cynical conversation I think I've ever had, Renee.
1: No, no, this is not cynical, right? This is happy and cheerful compared to how the developing world actually works, right? We're discussing rich people and rich people's problems. If you want to know why Africa is still broken, I can tell you, but you'll never look at your own people the same way again, right? You've got to remember that we live in a world where... One-seventh of human beings live in constant hunger, and one-third of the deaths that occur in any given year are directly attributable to poverty. And, I mean, these are astonishing statistics. If you imagine modeling America with, you know, one-seventh of Americans are in constant hunger, so all the people that are currently on food stamps are actually starving, you know, skinny children with huge bellies, you know that would be about what the world is like. About one-seventh of the people are in those kind of conditions. And then in America, every year, something like 300,000 people will die. Actually, not 300,000, 1% of the population, 3 million. So in America, every year, about 3 million people die. Imagine if 1 million of that 3 million were dying of poverty. A million excess
0: deaths in America every
1: year because of poverty would be about the level of poverty that we have globally.
0: Given that bleak reality, how do you see cryptocurrency, or let's let's say smart contracts and, and distributed governance systems like like uh, like a possible theoretically using Ethereum? How do you see that fixing it? What is your what's your game plan in uh, in crypto?
1: Let me flesh out a little more detail on the regulatory thing, uh, and then I think I could get directly into the heart of where the actual action is of this. So. The reason that I'm laying all this out is that the regulator's job is to protect the people. They may also think that their job is to protect a bunch of monopolies, they may think they're protecting the system, but at the end of the day, when you get all the way down to the bottom of their motivations, it is about protecting the populations who are at risk from exactly the kind of scammy bullshit marketing that has pushed the DAO to the level that it was at before it got hacked. If you look at America in the 1930s, 1920s, it was filled with pump and dump scams, Ponzi schemes, you know, 50 million different ways of taking advantage of human herd behavior and ripping people off because there are a set of predictable human reflexes. And if you startle people in just the right ways, they give you all their money and then you take it and run, right? So what we've seen is a set of predictable human behaviors which were at the heart of the reason that Wall Street got its uh, nuts cut off by central government way back in the day when they implemented things like Glass-Steagall, right? Glass-Steagall was put into place to separate the casino from the retail banking because the, it was just enormous amounts of people losing their savings in extremely risky speculative schemes that were not returning the investments that they said they would. Things like the Dow have happened over and over and over and over again, and we have the existing completely hard-ass
0: regulatory regime that we do specifically to try and prevent that kind of stuff happening in the dollar economy. So how does this come back to, um, to the regulation of Ethereum, though? Against that context, right, where we're in a
1: position where we understand fully how, you know, how the system really works, what you've got to ask yourself is, are we so different from the regular economy, we've fallen prey to exactly the same kind of bullshit that was the absolute bane of the financial system you know, in the 1920s and 1930s in America. There was a Ponzi scheme that knocked out, was it something like a 30% of the GDP of Albania or something like that? You know, former Soviet Union. Um. So, you know, if we've got the same kind of mass psychology, you know, pathologies that we saw inside of the regular system, is it really for us to claim that we are different and above it and special and unicorn-like? Or have we demonstrated why the regulations are there in other industries, in other currencies, by screwing the pooch in exactly the way that regulators really, generally speaking, try and prevent people doing in the real financial system?
0: How does this turn into a, you know, a changed world for Ethereum? So Ethereum is not a, you know,
1: special magical little a unicorn thing. It is an attempt to use the most powerful force that we know in the universe to govern human affairs. And that force is called mathematics. So, you go from having laws which are enforced by nuclear weapons sleeping in silos, physics, to a law which is enforced by mathematics, and, as we know damn well, you can't break the laws of mathematics. Physics, you could, generally speaking, find some way of hacking with engineering. But when you get right down to the math, if the thing has been implemented correctly, you are basically governing human affairs with the most powerful thing that we have identified as a species. This is a big deal, right? We might be at the beginning of centuries or millennia of adaptation to societies which are governed by mathematics rather than violence. My kind of take on this is the crypto-anarchist kind of naive libertarian approach to this kind of stuff is just retarded it's not even wrong right it's basically like a bunch of generals looking at the nuclear bomb as being a fantastic way of fighting battlefield wars and getting five kiloton nuclear devices made so that their soldiers could fire them out of mortars which by the way they did it's called the davy crockett but you know that's clearly not what a grown-up nuclear strategy looks like A grown-up nuclear strategy looks like you and I both build an enormous pile of nukes, and then we refuse to use them because if we do, we'll kill the world, and then the result is the Cold War, which then becomes the Cold Peace. Job's a good one. we figured out an alternative to fighting enormous ground battles all the time over resources. We've made most of the kinds of war that we really don't want to do completely impossible. Fantastic. That's a winner.
0: It is. It is. It's It's not a very elegant solution, though, is it? Well, compared to the alternatives... Right, of course. So you're describing Ethereum or governance by by math uh, in, in Ethereum today as as it's kind of popularly imagined, shall we say, as being the 5 kiloton nuclear mortar when what we really need is something a bit more pragmatic. Is there what, what's your what's your more mature uh, version of governance by mathematics? I think we should partner with the UN to fight climate change. How? Um, How are we going to manage global climate regulation? My
1: approach would be that you take everybody who's emitting carbon on a large scale, like the people that are mining coal, that are drilling for oil, and you basically, you know, um, force them to publish their results onto a blockchain. This is how much we took out of the ground. You then take that and you push the tokens that they're generating onto every single one of their customers as a kind of negative currency that you get tagged with every time that you burn carbon. So you get an electricity bill and it says, right, you have to pay us 138 euros and we have to give you, you know, 571 kilograms of carbon emissions. And these things are now attached to you personally. And if we had that done on a global scale, so that we could actually, you know, really seriously show exactly who it is that's emitting the carbon and what the carbon is being used for. I think that we could get a much, much clearer picture of the global situation that we're in. And by the way, that global situation, if you want to talk about bleak, you imagine what the world looks like the first year that we don't have a harvest because of the global drought.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah, really though? Global drought, like, is that a thing? Uh, yeah. I mean, is there a... Uh, wait, actually, rather rather than going down that track, so you think that, th- so your position, Vinay, is that the most productive use for the these new crypto ledgers that we've developed today, with the least downside, is essentially uh, tracking negative externalities.
1: Okay, so there's tracking negative externalities, which is a huge problem that we have right now. There's also global governance, where you could do things that look more or less like you know, global opinion polling from representative random samples. So you could begin to build a really accurate model of what the human beings of the world want without having to do 7 billion person polls. And I've talked about this extensively, right? It's pretty simple. As long as you could randomly select human beings and the random is genuinely random, and then you can ask them what they think, even a sample of a few hundred thousand people will be quite statistically significant. So, if you ask a few hundred thousand random human beings what they think, and 85% of them say, This is a terrible idea, don't do it, you could be pretty sure that if you vote globally, you will be within 10% of that number. You know, whatever it is, right? Ask a statistician if you want those numbers to be correct. But you have, you know, an enormous ability to actually make structural change if you could figure out what the global public opinion is. Now, the thing that I want to reinforce here is not that I'm recommending this is what we ought to be building, right? But the idea that the highest manifestation of the blockchain as an idea is to generate a currency and a bunch of smart contracts, which produce a hyper-efficient form of late-stage capitalism, clearly we are thinking about this in a very rigid, static, two-dimensional way. We have vastly bigger problems than the inability of people to trade with each other efficiently over international borders, We've got vastly bigger problems than the inability of people to play provably fair roulette with each other from the comfort of their living rooms. We've got 20 million people who will die this year of poverty, we've got one in seven human beings hungry, and we are wrecking the hell out of the ecosystem. Even if you don't believe in climate change as being something that human beings are causing, uh, deforestation leading to drought is really well understood and very, very clear. And we're deforesting the world at an appalling rate. And then you can look at things like the uh, levels of pollution inside of the sea, the concentration of poisonous chemicals inside of um, human body fat because they concentrate up the food chain. You know, There really is a slow-motion apocalypse going on right outside of the window. And because we've been operating inside of this tiny little transactional bubble when we talk about these currencies, we've completely failed to understand the real significance of the work that we are doing for the, long f-
0: f- the long-term benefit uh, and betterment of humanity. So let's, uh, let's take a step back and re-examine, the, uh, and re-examine cryptocurrency and uh, trustless computing systems. We have a world that is experiencing this slow-motion apocalypse. What can this trustless computing platform do uh, that we couldn't do before? What capability does it give us that will expand our ability to prevent this, uh, this disaster or these, these series of disasters from progressing any further.
1: All right, strap in, Arthur. You've asked me the right question.
0: Here's the problem. Right now, the
1: biggest entity that we have in terms of trying to get these kind of problems resolved is the United Nations. And the United Nations is a trade association for nation-states. It's a place where the people that are in the nation-state business get together to talk about things which are of mutual benefit. Individual human beings have no representation at the United Nations. So if you're in a democracy, theoretically, you got to pick your leadership and your leadership picked who they were going to send to the UN. If you're not into democracy, your leaders can do whatever they like at the UN and you don't get any voice at all. And that's the case for an enormous percentage of human beings. This is a very, very, very simple you know, problem, that you don't have any ability to get people universally represented, therefore it's very hard to get the world to pull together. Problem one. Problem two, we have the appalling long-term damage caused by colonialism. I'm not going to open that can of worms, so let's just note that it's there. We've got, you know, centuries of massive abuse, and eventually the bills will have to be paid on that stuff. And this is a huge part of the climate problem. Because right now, the big block in the climate negotiations is that nobody will agree whether every human being has equal right to emit carbon or whether countries should take their existing emissions and all cut them by the same amount. You know, these are the fundamental politics that prevent us getting action on climate. So, inside of this context, imagine if we had a way of getting ordinary human beings direct political representation on the big issues. The world gets a voice and the voice is, you know, authenticated using cryptography. I think that that would have an enormous tendency to stabilize the global political process because world leaders could point at the global opinion polls and be very, very clear. Look, 78% of the world are on my side on this issue. You must understand that I'm not going to give ground because the people of the world are behind me. You must give ground. And most people don't want to see the world that they're in completely destroyed for the benefit of a tiny percentage of humanity who are using most of the world's resources. So the prospect is that we could get direct political pressure from the great mass of humanity who are living in terrible conditions directly given a voice without having to go
0: through the filter of their largely authoritarian nation states. How would you roll that out, though? That, that sounds like it would be very difficult to... Uh, to... To bring to the masses, how would you educate and how would you, how would you deploy something like that? Well,
1: I mean, if somebody had said in 1995 that we were going to wind up with a central bank of the internet and that it was going to issue a globally accepted super hard currency, most people would have said, yeah, you're joking, you're dreaming, that's never going to happen. Ten years later, boom,
0: there you go. Fifteen. Okay, yeah, but it's still not broadly used and it's not really usable either. Uh, for for the every for the everyman, you know, it's not really usable for hundreds of millions of transactions a day. But if we
1: were in a position where enough stuff was happening on Bitcoin that you could really see the need for scaling, scaling would move further up the list of priorities. But even a kind of you know shaky central bank of the internet is still something that would have been completely implausible before it was done. And that's how you know Bitcoin was a real innovation because it went from being unthinkable to being achieved, and then it took us 10 years to basically sit around and talk about it before we figured out
0: what had exactly happened and what to do. Here's, here's the thing, though. I don't see Bitcoin as, as usable. I, you know, I, the UX is too clumsy with these addresses and things. Like No one solved that basic usability problem. And, and so it's kind of, it's, it's not really, it's, it's like an incomplete project. It's a project that was never finished. Well, I mean, indeed, but this is
1: the way, right? I mean, democracy took an awful long time to get a really clear foothold, and we haven't innovated in democracy in any fundamental way that I can see since we invented four-year representative democracy with paper ballots. We've gotten stuck on
0: that technology, and it's held us back for a century or more. Here, here's what I want to I want to put to you, Vinay. It seems to me unlikely that we're going to be able to turn cryptocurrency-based systems or, or trustless computing systems into tools for global organization and, and global polling like you describe within a timeline that can bear some kind of influence on the uh, on problems like global climate change in fact in fact it, to me it seems more likely that things like development of, of photovoltaics and things like that will be more and electric cars etc will be more likely to have an impact uber actually uber classic example more likely to have an impact on uh, on global emissions than any kind of uh, governmental intervention yeah I absolutely do so the the crux of this is if you ask
1: what are these cryptographies for right what what are these technologies really fundamentally about The existing answer that we have is, generally speaking, the Bitcoin libertarian answer. And it's a really shallow, kind of crappy answer, right? You know, unrestricted trade, tax starvation of government, self-organization of society. It looks okay for about 15 seconds. But if you actually think about what's going to happen in that kind of world, what you discover is that the agencies you pay to protect property rights wind up being de facto states and that you don't wind up with a competition for violence because large-scale violence is a natural monopoly. So very quickly, the entire thing devolves down into your Pinkerton agencies to wind up acting as de facto states, and you've lost the whole notion of democracy in the process. Right? The collapse of libertarian societies into protection bureaucracies is very, very simple and direct. There's no point in attempting to build a kind of crypto-utopianism um, because in all kind of you know, in any reasonable political analysis, then collapses immediately as you enforce property rights. And if you're going to have crypto anarchy with no property rights, I don't think there's a single non propertarian crypto anarchist that I can point to. They almost all believe that property is the soul of anarchy, which is, of course, completely nonsense, right? You know, property is theft, it's where you get anarchy from. There is no such thing as anarcho-capitalism. There's only capitalism. So, what I'm basically laying out here is that you can reconceive of the crypto project as being a project which is directly aligned with human survival rather than directly aligned with human greed. We have much more severe problems than the stability and clear function of the markets. We have really fundamental Maslow Pyramid 1 problems at the heart of our society.
0: Wait, what, what's, that, uh, what's that phrase you just used?
1: Oh, Maslow's Pyramid 1. So, you know, Maslow has this pyramid of needs. The fir- the Maslow Pyramid base layer uh, is the layer which is about, you know, food, water, shelter, you know, medical care. It's all the stuff you need to fundamentally stay alive.
0: This is interesting that you've brought this up because it seems like this is too big. There's too much going on here it's there's no other game worth playing absolutely i mean absolutely
1: so 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 play that game right go big or go home if we are not here to save the world why get out of bed in the morning
0: i i see
1: what what else what else is worth doing well i see what I, right? I mean, look within your lifetime and mine there is a very good probability that we will see the extinction of the human race nanotech biotech all that stuff is getting increasingly dangerous very 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 quickly Nuclear proliferation continues to be a factor we still have enormous unresolved superpower conflicts all around us and we're decimating the environment at an unbelievably fast rate while the population is booming
0: no i I take exception to that I think' we're, I think that um, we are actually seeing and, and again to bring this back to uber which is uh, which is something I think is really fascinating as far as uh, as far as emissions control goes if you have the widespread use of, uh, of you know, services like Uber at lower rates and the follow-on reduced car ownership and the proliferation of photovoltaic power generation at the edges of the network, eventually you wind up with reduced emissions rates. Oh, look, the self-driving car
1: thing is widely understood, right? Self-driving electric cars with highly optimised transportation planning could knock an enormous chunk of the footprint of carbon uh, from transportation, no doubt. And if you've got a fully automated logistical network for your heavy trucks, and you implement things like efficient load sharing, so when you've got a half-empty truck, it drives somewhere else, picks up another load, and takes it on the same truck, again, you'll see an enormous reduction in emissions. No doubt all that stuff will happen. However, American society is at something like eight planets worth of consumption right now. If everybody lived like Americans, we need something like eight planets to support them. And nothing on the table promises a reduction in in human environmental footprint among the rich of 85 to 90%, which is what we're talking about. It's not on the table. Even if we wind up with solar panels that are cheaper than coal, even if we succeed in decarbonizing the economy, we still have gigantic overconsumption in every other area. And you can pick these things off one at a time with things like laboratory-grown meat rather than felling the Amazon to grow hamburgers, which is, by the way, the number one cause of deforestation in South America. You can do that kind of stuff, but in all probability, it will be too little too late. Without some kind of fundamental movement towards lifestyle change, it is very unlikely that we can field these technologies fast enough to leave us with a habitable planet.
0: So that kind of brings us back to a uh, global financial apocalypse.
1: The the apocalypse has been ongoing for a while. What makes the global financial apocalypse significant is that it leaves rich people living in the conditions of poor people and reduces consumption. Well, I mean, there's that too, right? But you know, as I used to say, collapse means living in the same conditions as the people that grow your coffee, right? And, you know, the idea that, you know, we might have this terrible financial system collapse that would wreck everything, all that's going to mean is that we wind up living in the same conditions as the people that are currently supporting us by selling us goods at far below market prices because our country is putting pressure on their country who's putting pressure on them. Feudalism in Africa, socialism in China, and capitalism in America are a single fused system. All of the different systems of government in the world interconnect to produce the enormous wealth bubble, which is the American consumer lifestyle. And the Europeans are in the same boat, right? The system of the world is a very bad thing. And the highest purpose that I can see for the blockchain is to make the system of the world, first of all, visible and secondly, repairable. And
0: how does that happen?
1: Well, it happens because you start using blockchains for tracking the transactions and pretty soon you can track the resource flows. If we know the providence of a piece of electrical equipment, we could track that all the way back to the kids who were mining in holes in the ground in Africa with trowels, digging for the minerals that were necessary to make the antennas.
0: So in, in your view, provenance is the, most, is the killer app for uh, crypto ledgers. No, I think the killer app for crypto ledgers is global democracy. It gives you a way of having people
1: register their opinions in a way which is incontrovertible and doesn't require anybody to say so. Currencies are tiny little things, and the libertarian vision of the crypto future is hardly worth even discussing. It's like taking an enormous steel cannon and using it to light cigars every time you fire it. Right? It's not even wrong. It's insignificant, even if it's correct. The really hard problems are collective action problems at a far higher level than markets.
0: At at its heart, I suppose what provenance does is takes information from the base of the supply chain and brings it to tertiary industry effectively uh, you know to, to point of sale right and also and exposes the uh, exposes the behavior of the participants in that supply chain as as they go along it yes absolutely I'm not one of these masters of economic <laughs> history or the the theory the the history of economic theory but I always understood the core difference between Marxism and capitalism to be, that capitalism took no interest in the means of production; it sought to derive value entirely from, from market demand versus supply.
1: Right, price signalling fundamentally price signalling.
0: So, so capitalism is all about price signalling. Communism or, or Marxism, because I don't want to, uh, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to get the uh, my terminology kind of uh, too tied up here. Is concerned with the means of production as determining the uh, the ultimate value of something, yes. and using effective provenance tools, we could somehow reconcile these two uh, means of determining value by bringing negative extent by bringing the the negative externalities within that supply chain and manufacturing chain to bear on the final price of a good. Now you're talking. If that is the end game for cryptocurrency, if that, if that really is what it can do, cryptocurrency and and uh, and crypto ledgers in general, where do we go from here to realise that?
1: So let me be completely clear. I don't want to suggest that the model that I'm proposing is a terminal state model, right? This is not by any means the provably highest and best use of these technologies. There must be 50 different ideas that are just as general in scope with my idea is you use it for fixing poverty and environment by using transparency on what's happening in supply chains and markets. That's my model. That's our model. Somebody else could come along and could you know say, OK, look, the fundamental purpose of these things is to provide a resilient computing platform to implement artificial general intelligence. And we can invent something which will be so smart, it will solve the human race's problems but we need to give it a stable platform to run on top of that's got good access to market signals. What I'm basically proposing here is that there are vastly bigger pictures and bigger dreams here than the relatively conservative idea that this stuff is all about currencies and contracts. Currencies and contracts are a tiny part of the potential of the blockchain as a technology. And what I want to be sure is that when we are in the process of defending the potential of this technology against the people that want to shut us down, regulate us, or otherwise break our balls, what I want to suggest is that what we need to emphasize in these discussions is that this is day one of a completely new phase of the impact of computers on society. And that if we basically take a screw-up in one of the earliest experiments in that new phase, as an excuse for shutting down the rest of the innovation, we will have basically succeeded in wrecking our ability to explore the future in what could be an incredibly critical area. The argument that we're making for, you know, uh, clemency from the world for having lost an enormous amount of customer value in our experiment has to be a much more broadly and deeply argued argument for innovation than what happens if we just say, well, you know, you're kind of screwing up our anarcho-capitalist future here. Screw the anarcho-capitalist future, I don't give a monkey's, it's still going to result in a dead world. We need to really justify these technologies in ways which are massively broader than the current discourse, and that's not about everybody adopting my version of the story. I like my version of the story, but there are huge alternate narratives for the role of these technologies that only barely intersect with my version. And I think that those narratives are as likely to be true as mine, is in some cases. You know, the people that think we can solve the world's problems by inventing artificial intelligence and then having something smarter than us figure it out for us, that's a fully justifiable approach to the human race.
0: What do we do about the DAO and the, uh, and the regulatory concerns that, uh, that are now rearing their ugly heads along with it? So,
1: I don't think we really understand who is going to come and talk to us about the DAO and what they're going to say. You know we make a guess at this regular or that regular, or we make some guess that we might see this kind of lawsuit or that kind of lawsuit, we may be in a position where we do a good (laughs) enough job of patching up the cluster, uh, that's what I'm looking for, cock up, um, that we do a good enough job of patching that up ourselves at a technical level that the regulators who appear basically look at it and are just like, you know, that is so complicated, I don't even want to think about what would happen if we touched it. As long as there is a general said that this looks like you've done the best possible thing, fine, right? So we may discover that this whole DAO thing turns out to be a storm in a teacup and none of the regulators really bite us because we've shown some degree of competence in modeling what needs to be done. But we have to grow out of the narrative, which is so incredibly, you know, brittle and narrow, and which has led us up this path. You know, we act as if all of this stuff is happening in a tiny, 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 fragile little echo chamber about transactions and libertarian politics. And actually, we have to start weaving in the potential of the blockchain to be a broad, deep-rooted force for good right the way through the world's stories. You know, for example, Wikipedia makes a big deal out of tracking every edit on every page. Let's start thinking about what happens when we synchronize Wikipedia to blockchains So that we have a complete snapshot of the state of human knowledge recorded somewhere. So that in the future, evil governments can't force Wikipedia edits so that it looks like the past happened in some completely different way. You know, all of those kind of uses are relatively easy technically. They're super important socially, particularly in the unimaginable future. Um, And we're just not focusing on that stuff because everybody's running around focusing on libertarian politics and transaction processing it is our own fault that a break in one specific project has left the entire field in a state of shock. It's in that kind of state of shock because the field did not have enough diversity in it to be truly resilient. We'd gotten completely narrowed down into a single kind of thinking and a single kind of focus, and it is not at all surprising that when that exploded, it hurt us really badly. If we had 15 things going on that were all as interesting as the DAO was, then the DAO imploding would probably not be something that would cause a regulator to, say, shut this entire thing down. It's basically just a fragile financial system. It would be a huge, vivid, interesting, fascinating environment filled with complex, novel, interesting technologies. And at that point, you lose the fragility that could cause a regulator to throw out the baby with the bathwater. The real response to the DAO is going to take us even more time than we've had to respond to. But I think one of the things that we have to look at is ecosystem stability and ecosystem resilience in terms of the diversity of the applications on the platform. We need
0: bigger dreams. This actually brings up something that at first might appear to be uh, extremely tangential, but there was this idea that suddenly was was brought to our attention, not so much an idea, but a, a dynamic. And that was the, the economic consensus that maintains the... Uh, Supposed immutability of the blockchain, in fact, rests on top of this social consensus, whereby we all agree to abide by the economic consensus. And it seems like while we have decentralisation of the economic consensus, we may not have a decentralisation of that social consensus of the hopes and dreams of the uh, of the vision for this technology. Is that kind of on the right track? Yes, absolutely.
1: You know, we need a much louder, much more complicated ecosystem with, frankly, just much more stuff happening in it. So what's the, what's the next step? Um, I think the next step has to be a frank re-examination of how, you know, kind of our laser like focus on a few things has turned into a kind of institutional fragility. Um, and, yeah, I guess I'm going to say this on the record. I think we have to also look at the role that the foundation has as being very narrow and very technical, and we may need uh, a different vision for the foundation, or we may need alternate structures that are like the foundation but are not the foundation to really do the kind of broad-based activism and outreach which are necessary. Um, I've spent a tonne of time going to really unconventional places and really unusual groups and basically telling them what I think blockchains could do for them in the areas that are of interest to them. So, for example, I went to a very, very high-profile conference uh, conference in Germany in Weimar in the German national theatres, right? So right in the very heart of German society and culture called Fully Automated Luxury Communism. And, you know, (laughs) there was a government minister speaking about two hours after me Bruce Sterling was speaking, uh, Evgeny Morozov. I mean, it was a super high profile event. And I went there and, you know, they gave me half an hour on stage and you can see the talk, it's online, they recorded it beautifully. And, you know, I went there and I talked about blockchains and global governance to a really important slice through largely German society. And I did that because I wanted active people from those fields and those arenas to come over into our space and go like, so we saw this guy talk about how we could solve some of these really persistent social problems using your thing. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Because without this kind of large-scale social mobilization, so we've got everybody from you know, uh, you know, bicycle safety activists through to Alcoholics Anonymous bringing projects to the blockchain, we're going to wind up in an environment where everybody thinks it's a financial technology, and it's also going, it's going to wind up with the risk of being regulated like a financial technology. It's not a financial technology. It's the rebirth of the internet, including a whole bunch of new features that we left out in the previous version because they were too complicated to implement.
0: So what are the what are the, the, the spokes that you'd like to see this develop along? You know, what are the, what are the trajectories that we need to take this in? What, where's the low-hanging fruit? Okay, so let me, let me throw out one thing that I think is
1: really, really, really critical and extremely confusing and scary. I really think that we need provably fair internet dating.
0: Why? uh, Okay, um, (laughs) please elaborate. Well,
1: roughly 10% of people are born to couples that met online, and an enormous number of those people were matched by services like OkCupid or Tinder. Mm -hmm. The problem is those services are not neutral. They profit from having you continue to use the service rather than introducing you to people that you'll like enough that you go you know, into a committed relationship with them and then stop internet dating.
0: Okay, so you're saying that there is perverse incentive against matching you with, with compatible people. But do these internet dating sites actually exercise that? Like this comes back to this, and and excuse me if I, I don't want to like, you know, I, I don't want to overstep, but this is something that I notice among kind of the, the crypto anarchist culture. And it seems like this tremendous almost cold war cynicism that i don't necessarily agree with i, I kind of i kind of i have a, a an optimistic view of these um, kind of companies as innocent you'll, you'll you'll grow out of it you'll grow out of it <laughs> yeah I, I don't know will i maybe i will yeah. maybe i will yeah def- definitely I mean, did
1: you ever see the statistical reports that came out of OK Cupid for a long time no so OK, so OKCupid used to have or still has a statistical blog post series where they would basically show things like uh, how age affected the click rate for women's profiles. Or it would show things like which uh, races preferred to date people from their own race versus which races were more willing to date outside of their own race. Right. And so they had people's self-identification on their profile where they would define their age, their gender and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And then they could look at the objective click histories of how people reacted to that profile when they encountered it. And they data mined this stuff to produce all kinds of absolutely fascinating insights. You know, your pictures will do much better if men are not looking at the camera and women are. That kind of stuff. So in an environment with that kind of statistical uh, sophistication, the idea that they don't notice that people find somebody that they really like, message them tons and tons and tons and tons, then drop offline and never come back. Is completely implausible. Okay, so all right, all right, ab- absolutely. All, it's obvious.
0: It's obvious that it would be hemorrhaging money every time people found permanent partners. So, absolutely, that's. Uh, I, I'm I'm willing to accept that, A- and and even accept that. Okay, Cupid would be so cynical as to uh, deliberately match people with uh, somewhat incompatible uh, incompatible partners. How does that? bring us back to a, a fairer, you know, a, a better internet.
1: Okay, so suppose that we had, you know, some kind of, I don't know, internet dating database, right? A kind of backbone, which was provably fair, right? The profiles go up, they're stored in some way, there's a anonymity, there's cryptography, there's whatever it takes. So that kind of backbone could then be used by all kinds of different services to, that be presenting it in different ways. But you would know that the fundamental mechanisms that you're interfacing with are actually working for you on your behalf and they're matching you with people that different people's statistical models say are optimal rather than matching you with the people that it is most profitable for the company to match you with, which is what's happening now. And this is something that cuts so deeply into the heart of people's lives. People are spending an hour a day on internet dating sites when they're actively dating. These things are huge activities in a position where people are basically being farmed like cattle for profit by companies that are using their enormous data sets to get psychological leverage to keep people clicking. And that's a problem that we could fix. And if we fix that problem, I think that ordinary people would suddenly understand that blockchains mean fairness and transparency and things that matter to you in the heart of your life. They're not some abstract hack in the financial markets. A way of making sure that you got a fair, square deal from the services you depend on every day.
0: I, I all right, I, I see that. But what, what is, will people buy that? Is that something that people will accept as a, uh, as, as proof of fairness? Do people even take internet dating that seriously? Um, it, yes, they do, they really do. And look, 10% of births. Yeah, that's, that's right? crazy. I had no idea. That's in the States. Yeah. Uh, not sure. It might even be Europe. That's mad. If that's it, that's so Well, I mean, look. Come
1: on. How many of your peers, right, are sitting there on Tinder all the time? <laughs> not. That's right. Not all the time, the, man. <laughs> but a lot, and that stuff actually works. Like people are getting together on Tinder. They're, you know, they're they're pairing up. They're forming relationships. They're getting married. They're having babies. You know. People really, really are using these things.
0: So this is, yeah, this is quite crazy because this is very recent. I suppose internet dating has been around for a long time, but it's not been something that is kind of part of the, the collective human experience uh, and, until very recently, as far as I'm aware. Um,
1: well, I mean, once you get good enough tools, you get fundamental changes in human behavior. The cost landscape changes to the point where path A is more efficient than path B, and then human beings change their mind about what they do, right? Okay, yeah. So in this kind of environment, what's happening is that we've changed the cost landscape for humanity so incredibly quickly that people exist in a state of perpetual disorientation. And when they're in that state of perpetual disorientation because the world is shifting under their feet, they're very,
0: very, very vulnerable to exploitation by people who've got more insight into the situation than they do. And so, this is actually a, great, a much greater problem than just internet dating or uh, or Facebook. What is actually happening here is the human experience, at least. And this is very—I say the human. This is really the Western and uh, and to some extent the the Eastern. I, I suppose those are those are kind of semi-appropriate demarcations. Is changing so rapidly that these uh, these groups and individuals who have a better handle on what's taking place than we do are uh, in a position to abuse their insight, and blockchains may be able to put us into a position where may be able to give us a way to prevent those abuses from happening.
1: Precisely, that is exactly it, and I could not have said it better myself.
0: All right, so we've come uh, we've come a long way. What is the takeaway from this? What is the actionable? So. <laughs> Basically, uh, when all is said and done,
1: here is the advice. We need to think much bigger, but we need to think much bigger in much more diverse ways. So simply thinking of the kind of tax starvation of the state and this kind of you know libertarian anarcho-capitalist utopia is retarded. It's a really narrow, brittle political vision. It doesn't stand up very well to analysis you know, it's increasingly rare for me to meet people that genuinely believe in that vision. When I do, they tend to be very, very doctrinaire and dogmatic. I don't think that political vision is very helpful for us in PR terms. And I don't think that it solves problems that anybody in the wider world really cares about in practice. So to be of actual service to humanity, we need to start making this blockchain absolutely clearly visible to people as something that will help with the real problems of the world in big, heavy, tangible ways. Show me how we're going to track refugee children so they don't get lost when they're transferred from one agency to another when they go into a new country. Show me how we're going to track timber so that the rainforest isn't felt to make people's cheap, disposable furniture. Show me how we're going to do the providence of meat so that people don't wind up with E. coli infections from random contaminations that are impossible to track because you don't know which factory your hamburger came from. If we start solving real social problems using these technologies, it provides us with the best defense possible against accusations that we are a bunch of corrupt psychopaths, which is more or less the way that regulators would choose to see us if they wanted to really hurt us. Right? If we are solving the world's problems in a provable, fair way, and it's improving quality of life for an awful lot of people simultaneously, I think that's the best possible argument that we could make for people looking at our mistakes and saying, well, that's a learning opportunity, rather than looking at mistakes and saying, like, look, look, these people are just mad, bad, and dangerous. to know, get rid of them. And whether we are seen as being parasites or, you know, uh, embryonic saviors is entirely about whether or not we're talking in hard terms about, you know, this narrow anarcho-capitalist vision, which nobody likes, not in wider society. That's why it's a f- totally fringe thing. Or whether we're talking about doing the heavy lifting necessary to produce a better world using the most powerful tools that we have available, which are math and cryptography, which are actually the same field.
0: This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info, or follow us on Twitter at etherreview.